Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of the Trinity, Part 3. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We're continuing our lesson on the Doctrine of the Trinity. Before we re-plunge into that subject, however, I just want to alert some of you to the fact that every Thursday on our Reasonable Faith Facebook page, we're putting up a new feature. It's a short video called Join Me in My Study. And that's a double entendre. It's a pun. It's taken in my study at home. Jan does the video herself. But it's also about my current study of the Doctrine of the Atonement and gives you a chance to join with me as I study from week to week and share the things that I'm learning in this video. So if you have the uh, chance to look at the Reasonable Faith Facebook page, you'll find there posted every Thursday afternoon uh, this short two to five minute video, Join Me in My Study, which will, I think, prove stimulating to you as we struggle to understand the, this very difficult doctrine of the atonement. Today, however, we want to look at perhaps the equally difficult doctrine of the Trinity. And last time we saw that the uh, biblical writers affirm the deity of Christ and that in doing so they confronted the difficulty of saying that Jesus is God but without saying that Jesus is the Father. And this is uh, problematic because, as I shared the word for God uh, in the Greek, ha theos, ha is the definite article the, so the God literally, ha theos, God refers to the Father. And the New Testament Christians, uh, while believing that Jesus was deity, was divine, did not think that he was the Father. And that's why you don't find many statements in the New Testament that Jesus is hatheos, that Jesus is God. That would be to say Jesus is the Father. Instead, as we saw, they picked a different term to characterize Jesus, and that was the term kurios, or Lord. Ha kurios. And kurios is the Greek word that translates the name of God in the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh. And the early Christians, as we saw, would uh, call Jesus Lord, and they would apply to him Old Testament passages about Yahweh, um, saying that these are in reference to Christ. And so you have the very odd situation that the New Testament writers uh, while shunning the label theos for Jesus, do affirm that Jesus is kurios. And thus you get these odd circumlocutions, such as 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Um, and we find in the New Testament that the uh, writers attempted to do everything they could to affirm the deity of Christ, but without saying that he was the Father. 
The next point, uh, third point on your outline that we want to come to that illustrates this is the fact that Christ is given the role of God. To Christ, these authors ascribe roles that are normally reserved for God. For example, uh, let's look again at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. Colossians 1.15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Here the role of being the creator of all reality other than God is ascribed to Christ. Similarly, in John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 we have the same teaching. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here again you have ascribed to Christ, the Word of God, the creation of all reality apart from God himself. Finally, look at Hebrews chapter 1, where you have the same teaching. Hebrews and chapter 1, verses 1 to um, 3a. In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. Here, just like Paul in Colossians 1 and John in John 1, Christ is said to be the creator of the world. He is the heir of all things. Uh, just as Paul says he is the firstborn of all creation, he reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. And the idea there is like a signet ring which is pressed into hot wax to seal a document or a letter. And just as that wax bears the imprint of the ring, uh, so Christ bears the very stamp or imprint of the divine nature. He upholds the universe by his word of power, just as John says all things uh, were created through him. So the fact that we have in Colossians 1, uh, Hebrews 1, and John chapter 1 this same teaching about the cosmic Christ as the creator and sustainer of all things apart from God shows that this was the widespread conviction of the early church. This is not a doctrine taught by some idiosyncratic 
author. Uh, these are three different authors. Paul, an anonymous author of Hebrews, and then John of the Gospel of John. And all of them teach the same thing with respect to Christ, that he is the creator of the world. He plays the role of God in being the source of all reality apart from God. Finally, number four, sometimes the authors in the New Testament simply lose all restraint and they come right out and say, yes, Jesus is Hathaos. Jesus is God. And the best book that is written on this is by the uh, very fine New Testament scholar Murray Harris, and it's called Jesus as God. The subtitle is The New Testament Uses of Theos in Reference to Jesus. Murray Harris uh, was my Greek professor and spent a lifetime studying those passages in the New Testament which refer to Christ as Theos. And this is one of the few books that I would recommend to every Christian to read and have on his bookshelf. Uh, given the centrality of the deity of Christ for Christian monotheism, uh, I think this is really an indispensable tool. So put that on your uh, gift list or on your book list, Jesus as God by Murray Harris. And what Harris points out is that there are several passages in the New Testament where um, the best interpretation, the most plausible exegesis of these passages, is that the New Testament writers are affirming that Jesus is Theos. Let's look at these passages together. First would be Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. We already saw in the opening paragraph of the book of Hebrews that Christ is attributed the role of God, is said to bear the stamp of the divine nature. He upholds the universe by his word of power. Now look at what he says in verses 8 to 12. He says, of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness beyond thy comrades. End of Old Testament quotation. And, new quotation, Thou, Lord, didst found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. They will all grow old like a garment, like a mantle. Thou wilt roll them up, and they will be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will never end. End of Old Testament citation. Now, in verse 8, he says of the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Son is addressed as God, Theos. Now, this verse or this sentence could be translated, God is thy throne forever and ever, in which case the Son is not addressed as God. Uh, it could be translated in that way. But I think that the translation that I read is preferable because of the parallelism between verse 8 and verse 10. What you have here is Christ is addressed as both 
theos and kurios. In verse 8, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And verse 10, thou, Lord, didst found the earth in the beginning. So the parallelism here of God and Lord, I think, gives good reason for preferring the translation uh, as I read it from the RSV. Another passage, Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Here the author speaks of awaiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now look at that phrase, the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The Greek here literally means uh, our great God and Savior. That is whom we're talking about. Uh, it is uh, tu megalu theu, tu megalu theu kaisoteras hemon. Megalu from mega, you can see there that means great. Theu, that's uh, the genitive of theos. So this first part is our is great God and Kai Soteros, that's from Savior. And then the possessive pronoun, hemon, means our. So the bookends of this phrase are the definite article, to, and then the possessive pronoun, our. And these are, as I say, bookends that uh, frame the entire phrase that means our great God and Savior. So Jesus is referred to here as not only our Savior, but as also our God. A third passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. Here Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice what it says here about Christ. It says that in his pre-incarnate state, he was in the form of God. And if there's any doubt about what that means, look at the next phrase, equality with God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the word there for grasping means something to be clutched onto and held onto. Uh, he was willing to set that aside, to relinquish it, uh, and to humble himself and take the form of a servant. So in Philippians 2, 5-7, we have this very strong assertion that the pre-incarnate Christ existed in the very form of God, but he, he didn't grasp at or clutch or try to hold on to that equality with God, but humbled himself and took on human likeness. And then finally, we come to the writings of John, where we find several expressions uh, that equate uh, Jesus with Theos. 
First would be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 1, which we've already read, but I want to look at it again. Um, first John, or rather, Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, the final phrase there, kai theos ein halagos. The word order is inverted, and God was the word. Now, you might notice that theos does not have the definite article in front of it. Why is that? Well, because the definite article indicates the subject of the sentence, and the fact that the article is not here shows that this is the predicate of the sentence. The sentence should not be translated, and God was the word. Rather, the article indicates that the sentence should be translated, and the word was God. So that uh, in this case, the presence of the article with halaga shows that that's the subject of the sentence, and that theos is the predicate. And we saw that John goes on to then describe uh, Christ as the creator of the world of all things apart from God. John 1.18, John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Later copyists were so offended with this idea of um, the idea of the only begotten God uh, that is in the Greek here, that they changed it to Son. Uh, and your translations will probably indicate that as an alternative manuscript reading. Copyists changed God to the word Son here because they could not imagine this notion of the only begotten God. And yet that is what the best manuscripts read. The earliest manuscripts, going back to A.D. 200, um, indicate that the original wording of this verse is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So here John uh, makes quite clear what he already affirmed in verse 1, that uh, the Word, or Jesus, is in fact God. Turn to the end of the gospel, John chapter 20 and verse 28. Again, this, these are like bookends. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is affirmed to be God. And now, in chapter 20 and verse 28, at the end of John's gospel, we have Thomas's confession um, in verse 28. Thomas falls to his feet, uh, or falls to on his face, but, but at Jesus' feet, and answers him, my Lord and my God. In the Greek, ha theos mu kai ha kurios mu. Literally, the God of me, mu is my, and the Lord of me. So Thomas is affirming that Christ is both Hatheos and Hakurios. He is Lord and God. And this is the Christological climax of the Gospel of John, uh, Thomas's confession. It shows that 
Thomas understands Jesus to be exactly who John in his prologue says that he is. Finally, look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding to know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And the antecedent for the pronoun this is Christ, in his Son, Jesus Christ, who is the true God and eternal life. And so John here again affirms the deity of Christ. Any comments or questions on those passages in the New Testament in which uh, Christ is affirmed to be theos? Yes. Uh, I was just looking for some clarity because usually when I read uh, John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, the, the term through usually makes Jesus seem almost like a power of God or a, or a utility or a tool uh -huh. of some kind that God the Father used to make not that he himself is the creator. I'm not saying that he's not. I'm just saying I'm trying to understand how, how in every one of those passages you, you use the word through. Right. How does that make him the creator and not a utility or, or something? You see what I'm saying? Yes, I'm I do. And I, I think we do want to affirm that Christ is the agent of creation. He is the, the Father's agent of creation. That's right. That, um, th and this is especially evident in this idea of the logos or the word. The, this is one of the most interesting examples of the influence of philosophy upon the New Testament. This idea of the logos or word of God as the agent of creation, the means or instrument by which God created the world, is not unique to John or to the New Testament. It characterizes um, a philosophical school called Middle Platonism, which developed during the centuries after Plato wrote. Middle Platonists believed that the Logos, which is it's sort of the mind of God in a way, uh, is the instrument of creation by which God creates the world. And Jewish, uh, Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking um, Jews outside of Israel, like Philo of Alexandria, Egypt, talk a great deal about the, the Logos as God's agent of creation. Uh, you read Philo, it's almost like reading the prologue of the Gospel of John. Um, so this is a, a very common idea in the ancient world, that the Logos is the means by which God creates the world. But in Judaism, for Philo as for others, there's a clear dividing line between God, who is alone uncreated, and the rest of reality, which is created and dependent on him. And things like God's word and God's wisdom belong on God's side of the dividing line. These are personifications of attributes of God. Um, and 
belong on God's side of the dividing line between creator and creature. So, for example, some New Testament scholars have spoken of Christological monotheism. Um, Christ, the Word of God, is divine. He's not a creature. He's not a product of any creative act of God. He is on God's side of the dividing line between God and creation. Um, so I think you're, you're quite right in saying that on the New Testament doctrine, we should think of the second person of the Trinity as the one through whom God creates the world. He's the agent of creation. Yes, Ben? Uh, a couple of months ago in here, I talked about Jehovah's Witnesses in one of the verses yeah. that, that we, we talk about is Titus 2.13, and I brought that up where it says, you know, our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, then all they do is they just switch the comma, right? They just put the comma and they say our great God, comma, and Savior Jesus Christ, as in splitting those up. Is a proper understanding and explanation of the Greek that you went into when you translated that, would that inherently invalidate that explanation? Right, and that, that's that Harris's point, um, is that when you look at the way the Greek reads, the definite article and the possessive pronoun, our, frame the phrase and show that you can't put the comma earlier and say, our great God, comma, and our Savior. Mm -hmm. That's not what it means. It is our great God and Savior, hyphenated, if you will. Okay. And that is because of the framing of the phrase grammatically by the definite article and the possessive pronoun at the end. Great. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> really wonderful, <laughs> I think. Yes, Taiwan. Dr. Craig, um, when I used to work for Boeing long ago, uh, they tried to get uh, the, the drawings of the airplane into computer. So there was a big project that tried to um, take the existing system and logicalize it and then use the, the most efficient logic and then physicalize it with a new technology. Hmm. So in that process, I can almost understand that God the Father is the logical system, and then God the Son is the uh, physicalizing of that logic system. Do you think this is a proper analogy? I, I see the point of the analogy, because the word logos is obviously the root from which we get our word logical. It can mean reason as well as word. And for these middle Platonists, this was the mind of God. The logos was that intellectual side or aspect of the divine being. Um, and they would compare it to the mind of an architect, say, who was designing a city and then executing his plans. So, yes, I, I think that the analogy is apt um, and, and does uh, emphasize the logical and rational nature of God and of the created order. In fact, I was once talking to uh, a Russian Orthodox um, believer when we were in Russia, and he said that one of the reasons he liked evangelical Protestantism better than Catholicism 
was because in Catholicism, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is said to proceed from the Father and the Son. The, the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Logos and then to us, whereas in Greek Orthodoxy, the Spirit proceeds directly from the Father without passing through the filter of the Logos. And that affords a more mystical approach to God, a kind of ah-rational approach to God that he as an Orthodox believer found very congenial. He didn't like your analogy of, of having this be logical and being a rational expression. He wanted to have a more mystical spirituality uh, that he thought was better in line with the idea of the Spirit coming directly from the Father rather than proceeding through the filter of the Logos. Uh, and I think that would bear out the point of the analogy that you're making. Yes, Zach? I think it's interesting. I think it's in John when there's a passage where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And I think it's interesting in light of this whole discussion it seems we, we were talking about Jesus being distinct from God the Father. So to me, it seems to, he seems to be referring to like a very special relationship in the same way that we might talk about oneness and marriage, even though we have two individuals. So, you know, I think the people say that God invented marriage as a way to help us understand mm -hmm. the union that the believer has with Christ. But do you think uh, there's also that aspect of it helps us understand the Trinity in a way? Or? Well, I do think that undoubtedly John thought of Jesus as God and thought that they had a deep underlying unity of, of nature and essence. We see that from the other passages. So maybe John interpreted that saying of Jesus, I and the Father are one, to have a deeper level of significance that we're one in nature or substance or essence. But on the surface of it, at least, it just seems to be that expressing that we're, we're in harmony with each other. I and the Father are of one mind on this, and he prays that believers would also be one in the same way and one with him and the Father. And so, at least on the surface, it doesn't look like this is a deep metaphysical truth about the oneness of the Son with the Father. But boy, given what John says elsewhere in his Gospel, it could well be that he saw that this had a deeper meaning than simply the surface meaning that I and the Father are of one mind on this or that we agree on this. All right, the last point then that I want to make with respect to the affirmation of the deity of Christ in the New Testament is that there are many, many other passages, which we uh, will not take the time to read, uh, in which Christ functions as God. For example, receiving worship. This is unique to God. Only God can properly receive worship, and yet Christ receives worship in the New Testament. There are certain Christological titles given to him that seem to imply his deity. For example, the Son of God. Um, this uh, could just refer to his messianic status, that he is especially anointed by God. But I think when you read the New Testament, they think of Jesus as God's Son in a special sense that the Hebrew kings 
or holy men could not be said to be God's sons. Jesus is God's son in a special and unique sense that set him apart. Or Jesus claimed to be the son of man. Um, This is a title borrowed from Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has a vision of this divine human figure uh, which is called the son of man who comes before the throne of God and God gives to him all authority and power and dominion that all the peoples of the earth should worship and serve him. And this is the title that Jesus applied to himself most frequently in the Gospels, that he was the Son of Man. And the use of the definite article there, the Son of Man, I think shows that he's harking back to Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of the Son of Man. And not just referring to himself as a human being, as Ezekiel did when he called himself a Son of Man. Jesus always consistently used the definite article, he is the Son of Man. Uh, So the point is that these New Testament believers um, thought that the Jesus of Nazareth who had lived among them, uh, who had died, who was raised from the dead by God and ascended into heaven, that in some difficult to express way, he was God himself. Now he was not the father, that's clear, but he was equal to the father. That is to say, he was God. Any final discussion of the uh, person of the the Son, that he is a distinct person and that he is God? Yes, George. Bill, I know the Defender's class does apologetics or the defense of the essentials of the faith, which I take to mean the things that constitute the gospel. Uh-huh. In other words, that's what you have to believe to be saved, yeah. and also does theology. Would you see the Trinity as falling in, under apologetics or theology? I don't think when Paul and the apostles spread the gospel in the book of Acts, they asked people to believe in the Trinity. Uh, and when you do your apologetics work around the world, do you typically defend the Trinity? Is that part of apologetics, or is that just theology? I think that it is primarily theology that we're doing here. We're examining Christian doctrine. But I would say, George, given the rejection of this doctrine by, for example, Islam, which is the only world religion which has arisen with full knowledge of Christianity and in rejection of its teaching, uh, it, it becomes imperative that we be able to state, articulate, and defend this doctrine of the Trinity. And as I mentioned as well, it's denied by virtually all cultic or sectarian groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Latter-day Saints, um, Christian Science, and so forth. And therefore it becomes an issue of apologetics because it's a central theological doctrine that is under attack from these various non-Christian groups. And so I would see this as something that is involved in apologetics as well. Perhaps defensive apologetics rather than offensive apologetics. I don't think one needs to try to prove that the Trinity is true. I I think what one would do is say this is what we as Christians believe 
and then answer defensively the attacks or criticisms of the doctrine launched by Muslims and others. So the doctrine is entailed by the essentials? Yes, yeah, I think so. Well, the next person to be looked at is the person of the Holy Spirit, but I think this is a good point at which to uh, break, and we will come back next time and look at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Let's close with the benediction. And now may the love of God, our Father, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit be with us throughout this week. Amen. The copyright for the content of this recording is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.